Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Welcome to Palm Sunday. I'm going to, uh, I have a message for you. I've developed this message over 20 years. Seriously. So get ready. Father, we ask for the divine hand of God to be upon us today. We just thank you that you are with us. You're here. We ask for the anointing. We ask that our ears be open, our minds be clear, and our hearts be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you watching online, I might ask you in just a few minutes, we're going to be taking communion together, so you might want to gather your communion in the substance you have and join us in just a few minutes. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation. He's lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was written several hundred years before Palm Sunday. That was a prophetic word that God gave in the Old Testament. Let me talk to you a little bit this today. I want to, first of all, start by talking about Palm Sunday itself, and then I want to transition into what that means for us in our life today. Here's kind of a backstory. Jesus has just left Bethany in the morning, and, and it's Sunday morning. He begins to approach Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey, and the disciples have secured this donkey for him. And upon this animal, Jesus is beginning to descend the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. He was not alone. With him was a whole multitude of people from Bethany. When all the people moved into the city at Passover, they overflowed the city and they stayed in surrounding towns and villages and Bethany was one of them. So there's a crowd in Bethany. They have just witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. And because of that miracle, Jesus is the center of attention. So when Jesus leaves Bethany and starts toward Jerusalem, this mob of people who were in Bethany come with him. The Gospels tell us that they were throwing their robes and palm branches in front of this little donkey. It is some kind of a procession. So here comes this mass of people who have found that Jesus completely captivates their interest and their attention. And as this crowd moves towards the city of Jerusalem, something interesting happens. That mob of people from Bethany are now joined by another mob that comes surging out of the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. This is the second multitude. And like two great tides flowing together, to make one see, a mass of humanity now surrounds Jesus. 
and all of them are waving branches and crying out, and Jesus is descending this little mountain, crossing the brook, and now entering the city. Now, as we, as we think about the people of this Passover, I want to refer to a census that was taken around that time. And in that census, the number of lambs slain at the Passover feast was 256,500. A quarter million lambs were slain during the Passover. Now, the law of the Passover lamb said there had to be a minimum of 10 people per lamb, which would make the population of Jerusalem at around 2.6 million people who had come to Jerusalem at that time. That's a massive amount of people. Tens upon tens upon tens of thousands, all hailing Jesus. And because of all the miracles Jesus had performed, particularly because of the raising of Lazarus, people were beginning to think of Jesus as a conqueror. And so they grabbed palm branches, which are always the sign of a conqueror, and immediately began to think of Jesus as the one who may save the nation. But they're not hailing him as a spiritual Messiah, as much as a political savior, a political deliverer. Now the spirit of Passover was the spirit of being freed from the oppression of your enemies. Because Passover, as you know, celebrated God delivering the children of Israel from Egypt. So the people were ready for another deliverer on this Passover. They wanted somebody to lead them in a liberation fight against the Romans. And when the people heard what Jesus had done with Lazarus, they thought, wow, here's the man. Here's our deliverer. So notice what they cry. Hosanna. Hosanna. Which means save now. Save now. But it's not so much a praise as it is a prayer. They were saying, oh Jesus, great conqueror, king of Israel, save us now. But they're not talking about a spiritual salvation. They're talking about a political revolution. They were voicing a prayer, but it was quite selfish. Our application for today, I'm not talking about you necessarily, but the people who want Jesus many times, they want Jesus to save them, but in their way. We want a natural salvation, not so much a spiritual salvation. We think he's come to set us free in the realm of our expectations. We shout, rejoice, say, Hosanna, save me now. Yet when he tells us how he will save us, we say, well, maybe later. Wow. We want salvation on our terms. So we set, Jesus sets the stage here. And this is the transition for in seven days, the whole world will change. Wow. Behind Jesus were his sermons. Ahead, his sufferings. Behind him were his parables, and ahead of him was his passion. Behind him were the suppers of fellowship. Ahead of him was the last supper of betrayal. Behind him were the delights of Galilee, and ahead, dark Gethsemane. Prophecy was now to become practice. What is all this preparing for and pointing to? 
Well, it's actually pointing to a servant king who would be sacrificed, preparing earth for heaven's plans, preparing earth for the entrance of the king who would rule over all, preparing earth for the one event that would change everything. And the proof of who was king and who owned the earth. What was this great plan? Well, it was a plan of transformation. Creative transformation and spiritual transformation. Individual transformation. Romans 12.1 says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind he will find acceptable, this is truly the way to worship him. So, this scripture in Romans 12, 1 is talking about a living sacrifice. What does a sacrifice entail? Well, two things, basically. A living being and blood sacrifice. A sacrifice always has to do with blood being shed. And this scripture tells us that the beginning of transformation begins with a sacrifice, which is then tied to worship. This sacrifice has to do with blood. Now, I'm going to talk to you a little bit. I'm going to be a scientist here this morning, a medical doctor. I'm going to talk to you about what blood really is. I'm going to talk to you about the natural aspects of blood, leading them to the power that's in the blood of Jesus. Let's talk about the blood, our blood. Blood is a unique living substance. It is not like other fluids in our bodies, such as tears. Tears and these kinds of secretions are merely organic compounds. Blood, however, is actually liquid living tissue. The heart pumps the blood to every part of your body and goes to every cell in under one minute. There are approximately five quarts of blood in your body. Your blood includes two different kinds of cells, red blood cells. These cells carry oxygen, iron, and life-giving supplements to your cells. There are millions of them. You have white blood cells. These cells have clotting agents in them and antibodies. These cells fight off disease. They're the soldiers of your body. These are less, there are less of these than the red blood cells, but when you have a disease, they multiply quickly to fight the sickness off. That is why when you go to the hospital, the doctor will look at your white blood count because that will tell them if there's a disease or an infection or not. When your blood supply is cut off, the flesh dies. Without blood, there is no life. When your blood is drained out of your body, your flesh has no way to sustain life. Your flesh and bones immediately begin to deteriorate and die. Now, I want to give you the eight purposes of blood, and I want you to apply this spiritually. Can you do that? Apply it spiritually. But here are the eight natural purposes of blood. Number one, it carries life to every cell. Leviticus 17, 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. In other words, it is made to touch every cell in your body, bringing life to them. Apply that spiritually. Also, number two, it removes waste from your body. It's a cleansing agent. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it removes waste from our being. Number three, it keeps your temperature at the right level. 98.6, uh, maybe a few degrees or a little bit less, a little bit more, but it's about 98.6. It keeps us from getting too cold spiritually and too hot with disease. 
When Peter was away from Jesus, this is an interesting correlation. When, Jesus, when Peter was away from Jesus, he warmed himself at the fire because he was cold, and that was when he rejected Jesus. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Number four, it brings each cell into the proper atmosphere and energy level. It brings energy to you. Your blood brings energy to you. Hebrews 10.19, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. We are energized, both naturally and spiritually. The blood of Jesus energizes us because we are in fellowship and relationship with God himself. Number five, it brings emergency supplies to the cells. It can bring adrenaline. It can bring other things that are needed. Jesus does the same thing through his blood. Number six, it defends the body. The leukocytes, these are corpuscles that fight death. There is actual protection in the blood. That's why in Exodus 12, 13, it says, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So it defends us. The blood of Jesus also defends us. You're going to hear about this in just a minute. Number seven, it coagulates in order to stop bleeding. Thank God we have coagulation in our bloods, in our blood system. If we didn't, we'd all bleed out at the first scratch, and we'd be dead. Thank God. It's a bringing together of the blood so life won't escape and leave. Colossians 1.20 says, And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. In other words, the blood of Jesus also brings things together that are not in harmony and makes them right. He coagulates them. And number eight, the blood bathes each cell so it stays in the same atmosphere. In the very same answer. In other words, it keeps each cell healthy and in the right balance. Now, this is interesting. God's presence is drawn to where the blood is applied. Watch this. In the Old Testament, Tabernacle of Moses, they go into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the priests, seven times, scatters upon the mercy seat, the blood. All of a sudden, the cloud of his presence comes. Wherever his blood is applied, his presence comes. That's comforting. That's comforting. So the blood of Jesus keeps all of us in the atmosphere of the Father. So let's go back. Let's talk a few minutes. I got a little bit of time here. Let's go back and listen and, and think about the first Adam. God created Adam, who had his very own special, who, who was his very own special creation, and he made him in his image. He had divine life pumping through his veins. He had the very nature of God. He had life eternal resident in his very own bloodstream. Therefore, he had the luminous love and life of God flowing through his being. Adam had heaven's pure, wholesome goodness pumping through his veins. God never intended Adam or any of mankind to know sickness or to suffer death. That's why when you're sick and people die around you, it doesn't seem right. He intended that we all have the same quality of life as God himself. 
So when Adam sinned, he deliberately turned his back on God, making Satan his Lord, and committed the most damnable act of supreme treason. He sold himself and humanity into the slavery of sin. It was the reverse of being born again. And when you're born again, God's nature and spirit enter you. But in this case, when Adam sinned, he allowed the nature of Satan, which is death, to enter him. When death came in, life went out. So Adam allowed sin to conceive and he became cursed. What does that mean? His nature changed and his blood was polluted. His blood became poisoned. And since Adam was the progenitor of all humanity, his sin through his blood passed to all humanity and we are now all poisoned by our father Adam's sin. Sin is actually an hereditary blood disease. It's a family curse. We are all infected with sin. The sin disease became so terrible that in a way humanity had to be destroyed like a herd of anthrax infected cattle. That's why God went to Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of of the Lord and, and the flood destroyed all of those previous. God would begin again through Noah's bloodline. Now let's go to the next step. Let's talk about Jesus being the last Adam. He's not referred to as the second Adam. He's referred to as the last Adam. God had a foolproof strategy for bypassing the tainted blood of Adam and getting heaven's anointed blood back into humanity. He found a virgin named Mary who found favor in his eyes. You can find this in Luke chapter one, verse 28 and following. And he had a plan. Now, as you know, conception occurs when the female egg is united with the male sperm. Blood enters the egg when it is fertilized. The word says that Mary was impregnated by the word of God, by the Holy Spirit. Mary was the source of the body of Jesus, which was earthly or all man. She carried in her body the egg, which contained all the chromosomes to grow the fingers, the toes, the hands, the ears, the eyes, everything about the natural body of Jesus. The Father God, through the Holy Spirit, supplied the blood. As a baby develops in the womb, it is separated from the mother by the placenta. The mother's blood bathes the outside of the placenta but goes no further. The baby's blood circulates on the inside of the placenta and the mother's blood circulates on the other side. The baby's blood is completely separated from the mother's blood. In fact, many times, it's a different type of blood. So Jesus' blood came from heaven, from his heavenly Father, and therefore is eternal and incorruptible. Jesus was sin-free and sick-free because his blood was pure and holy. There was such virtue in his blood that he could touch lepers. He could heal the blind and the deaf. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the very precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Human blood 
is one of the most co corruptible substances on earth. It is the ideal breeding ground for thousands of diseases. Blood, when removed from your body without refrigeration, will begin to corrupt immediately. Germs are attracted to it. Flies are attracted to it. Imagine the odor that must have taken place in the outer court when animals were sacrificed. The quarter million lambs were sacrificed. Imagine the odor and the disease and the germs. The Jews were warned not to drink blood because it was corruptible. Undertakers remove the blood from those who have died so the body won't decompose before burial and spawn infectious disease. But Jesus' blood? The incorruptible blood of Jesus? Jesus was and is life because he had incorruptible, unpolluted blood. The absolute divine life of God was pumping through the veins of a sin-free human being. This is why the Jews were appalled when Jesus asked them to, to drink his blood. John 6, 53, so Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But they did not understand what he was saying in the spiritual to the Jewish mind, this is ghastly and blasphemous. They didn't understand that Jesus was saying that there was divine life in his blood. And if they accepted him, they would receive that. We can now understand the significance of the bread and the wine of the communion table. We are reminding ourselves of the incorruptible blood that has set us free every time we take communion. And you should remind yourself. You should remind yourself of the power of the blood. Jesus did not have corruptible Adamic blood. And after his death, his body didn't decompose. Stay with me. Jesus came to earth as our lifeline from heaven. The culture of divine life was inside his body. In order to release heaven's life, he had to submit to scourging, flogging, and death where his blood would pour out and spew into the atmosphere. Remember, his blood is incorruptible, therefore it is eternal, it doesn't die. The life of God is an actual eternal heavenly substance. It was the very real, intangible life of God that Jesus had pumping through his veins. It was with him on the earth, it was with him in hell, and then it was with him when he took it to heaven. Stay with me. For those of you who didn't know it, Jesus went to hell for three days after he died. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Figuratively, to reach God, we must pass through Jesus' wounded side. Figuratively being covered with his blood. Just as an infant passes through the womb and then we are born again. Now watch this. So Jesus with his incorruptible blood, he dies. Jesus then proceeds to go to hell and all the inhabitants of hell surrounded Jesus in hell as he seemed disarmed and defenseless. They were celebrating their great victory.
But hell's celebration was a little bit premature. Why? Hebrews 2.14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, this is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In other words, Jesus, even in hell, was still covered with heavenly blood. This is eternal blood. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot die. It transcends death and hell. His physical body died, but his, his incorruptible blood did not. The plan was for Jesus to become sin. Now watch this. The plan was for him to become sin so that he could gain entry into hell. I'm glad I wasn't in that. I wouldn't want to be a plan to go to hell, but that was the plan for Jesus. Now watch this. It appeared to the demons that God had lost the war as Christ suffered the terrors of hell. What he still didn't understand was that the soul of the Son of God was covered with his own spiritual incorruptible blood. That's Satan. For, earth, for three earth days, Jesus experienced the unimaginable. The combined sufferings and sin of every person who had ever lived or who would ever live was put upon him. And when his sufferings equaled the combined punishment of everyone everywhere, the scales of justice were balanced. And the penalty of sin had been paid in the currency of Jesus' sufferings. At that precise moment of equity, something began to happen. A light sprang out of darkness. His blood began to shine brighter and brighter. That's why in the book of John, we look at John 1 and we think that's about Jesus in his life on the earth, and it was. But listen to it in this concept. The word gave life. John 1 verse 4, the word gave life to everything was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness in hell and the darkness can never extinguish it. In hell, a light began to shine. Jesus was actually transfigured in hell. He was raised into newness of life by the virtue of his own blood. And Romans 6, 4, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, that glory was resident in his blood. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. In that darkness, he began to shine. The livid, luminous blood of Jesus burst forth it's kind of a supernova of demon-scorching glory. Can you imagine the panic and confusion in hell? Light torments them, particularly God's light. There was no place for the demons to run. They couldn't escape. They were already in hell. They were trapped in hell. His brilliant light from his eternal blood burst forth from hell and filled the entire universe. All Jesus had to do Let's walk over to the cringing, crawling, falling, whimpering, totally defenseless devil, pick up the keys of death and hell. Instantly, darkness and death were defeated. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle 
of them, triumphing over them in it. Let me read it to you in the Message Bible. I like this. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross. And he marched them naked through the streets. In other words, he opened prison doors and he set the captives free. Satan was not simply defeated by the blood of Jesus. He was publicly humiliated. Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. <laughs> By... By his blood, he defeated the devil, delivered us from the powers of darkness, and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Revelations 12, 11, you know this scripture well. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. We were then made, as we received Jesus, we are then made warriors of light and life by his blood. The light and life of his blood are in us and upon us. Just as Jesus radiated with the heavenly blood, we also radiate with his blood. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. Are you still with me? Oh, I have eight things to close. It's the best part. I hope you never forget this message. You need to, you need to, be, you need to be understanding the power of the blood of Jesus. When, when, when you have a problem and you have a discouragement or depression, you go back and you recall what the blood of Jesus has done for you. And you're going to do something. I'm going to show you eight things here. The spiritual principles of the blood that we must apply. Number one, the blood of Jesus is a covering and a protection. It's a covering and a protection. You apply the blood daily. Genesis 3.21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. It's the first reference to blood being shed in the Bible. And there was a covering to protect them through the shedding of innocent blood. Through Jesus' blood, he protects us. The blood of Jesus actually comes and protects us, and we apply that blood. Joshua 2.18, and remember the story of Rahab. The spies told her, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And she bound it, and then you will be saved, they said. That scarlet red uh, cord was in the window. Exodus 12, the very same thing that many people celebrated this weekend, the Passover. In this story, they would apply the, the blood of the lamb upon the lintels and the doorposts of their house, and the death angel would go across, would move, would, would pass over them. It protects us. The blood of Jesus protects us. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. Number two, the blood of Jesus cries out. In Genesis 4.10, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Blood cries out from the ground. Cain and Abel, you remember the story, Cain offered a cursed thing to God in his sacrifice, giving him things grown out of a cursed ground. The ground had been cursed. It says in Hebrews that Abel gave a better sacrifice through faith. How do you get faith? You get it by hearing the word of God. He heard what God said. The lamb's blood was proof of Abel's love. Abel chose probably his most favorite, favorite lamb to sacrifice. A little fluffy. I don't know what his name was. 
But listen, if Abel heard the command to bring a sacrifice of innocent blood, then Cain would have heard it too. But his blood, Abel's blood cried out for justice. The blood of Jesus cries out for mercy and life for us. The blood of Jesus speaks of better things, according to Hebrews, than the blood of, of Abel. The blood speaks for you. Satan attempts to prosecute you and condemn you by saying you have sinned and you have failed, but the blood of Jesus drowns out those feeble attempts of the enemy to condemn you by saying mercy, mercy, mercy. That's what the blood says. Jesus' blood speaks to the Father of righteousness, holiness, and cleansing. Number three, the blood of Jesus frees you from the judgment and condemnation of God. After you've received the blood of Jesus in your life through faith and belief and confession, all the Father sees is the blood of Jesus. It's all he sees. When he looks at you, all he sees is the luminous light of the blood of Jesus, and he has no judgment placed upon you. You have to understand, when you receive Jesus Christ in your life, and the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you, you receive Jesus, you're born again, what happens to the blood of Jesus is applied over you. There is this luminous, life-giving blood of Jesus, and when God looks down, because you are, you are, uh, you're, you're headed for the, the death penalty. All of us are dead in our sins and our trespasses. But when the blood of Jesus is applied, there's this covering and when God looks down, all he sees is the blood. He can't see the law. He sees the blood because the law actually persecutes you and says you are, you are worth the death penalty. But when the blood of Jesus is applied, life. So, when Jesus looks and God looks around the world, how does he know where his believers are? The luminous blood of Jesus is shining everywhere. The demons see it too. They know who belong to God because the blood is applied. I got goosebumps. The blood of Jesus is an antibody against sin, number four. Since we have all blood poisoning, we need a spiritual antibody to be placed into us to purify us. That's the blood of Jesus. This antibody fights against sin and prevents us from sinning. Number five, the blood of Jesus makes us the friend of God through covenant. We see in, I think it's uh, Genesis 15, Abraham is called the friend of God when he cut covenant by shedding blood with God. We are the friend of God when we apply the blood of Jesus to our lives. Number six, the blood of Jesus makes peace with all unreconciled things. Let me read Colossians 1.20 again. It says, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Remember, this means a bringing together of things that were divided. The blood of Jesus brings together those things that are not in harmony and brings them to right and in unity. I'm gonna read Colossians 1.20 out of the Message Bible. I like this this. Uh, 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 this frame of reference here. He says, so spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonics, all because of his death, his blood that poured down 
from the cross. Torn relationships, broken things, things in your life that just seemed out of sorts and messy. The blood of Jesus reconciles them, brings them back together. It coagulates us. It brings us together. Number seven, the blood of Jesus speaks life into our being. Ezekiel 16, 6. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I think we need to speak into dying things. Live by the blood of Jesus. Live by the blood of Jesus. It's just not the name, it's the blood. It's, it's the powers in the blood. The power is in the blood. We must live and we must speak to dead things. Come alive by the blood of Jesus. Remember years ago, Connie and I were, we were learning the tabernacle prayer through Dr. Cho. And I remember he, he started doing something I thought it was a little weird. In a part of the, of the prayer, he said, Father, I worship the blood. I thought, oh, that's a little strange. Worshiping the blood. What he was saying, I elevate the blood. I apply the blood. I ask you, oh God, let the blood be applied in my life, reconciling me, cleansing me, purifying me. And number eight, we need to continually plead the blood of Jesus. As we stand before the supreme judge in the court of heaven, every one of us must enter our plea. We're in a court. You would, this is the great judgment. Every one of us will have the opportunity to enter our plea before the great judge. The Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Shall we plead guilty? We are. We're guilty of sin, trespasses, but someone has already paid for our crime. How shall we plead? Your Honor, we plead the blood of Jesus. Your Honor, we plead the blood of Jesus. You see, when we plead the blood of Jesus, we are submitting to the courts of heaven the evidence of our new, pure bloodline as proof of our innocence. We have been given a brand new identity and we have received God's spiritual DNA. How can you be convicted of a crime if your blood does not match up with the DNA of the criminal? Wow. Father, I plead the blood of Jesus. Your honor, I plead the blood of Jesus. And I'm telling you, you will then stand acquitted by irrefutable blood evidence. The blood of Jesus. You've been transformed by the blood. You've been cleansed by the blood. You've been freed by the blood. This is so serious and I think it's something we need to reflect on more. Because when we sin or we do things, what we're doing, we're throwing the very spiritual evidence back in the face of God. 
But what we must stand in the power of the blood. When the enemy comes, you just plead the blood of Jesus. Daily, I would encourage you, Lord, I plead the blood of Jesus. I am pure, I'm clean, I'm blameless because of the blood of Jesus. And today that's you. Would you bow your heads? In just a minute, I'm going to play a song. I want you to do this. When this song is played, if you have not been, if, if you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Lord, Jesus as your Savior, and his blood has not been applied to you, you don't know what would happen today if you died. And you want Jesus to live in your heart as the Lord and Savior. I want you to, at the, when this song begins, I want you to come to the very front and kneel. I want a second group to come. If this morning you were here and you have a sickness that you want God to heal, I'm talking about a sickness. You come to the front and kneel. I'm asking for a third group. If this morning you have broken parts of your life, broken relationships with others, maybe emotional things that have occurred in your life that have just wrecked you and ravaged you, and you want the blood of Jesus to be applied to that and heal you, I want you to come. Three groups of people today, those that need Jesus and the blood of Jesus applied to their lives initially. Number two, those that need healing and those that need broken things healed. If that's you, come as the song is played. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.